Welcome to the Bayshore Podcast. As listeners each week, whether through iTunes or through the church app, you're part of our church family. We would love for you to share stories of how Bayshore is impacting your life by sending us an email at amen at bayshorecc.org. As always, you can find all kinds of information and content on our website, bayshorecc.org. There's also our church app, which you could download by going to bayshorecc.org slash app. So thanks again for joining us this week, and we hope that today's message is a blessing to you. Well, good morning, Bayshore. Good to see everybody. I'm Pastor Danny. It's good to see everybody. Thank you for being here. Wasn't the worship amazing today? Let's just uh, thank the Lord for having such great worship. I was sitting on the front row. I was thinking, you could be anywhere in America, and you couldn't hear worship this good. It's such a good good thing to be a uh, part of God's presence. So it's good to see you guys this morning. We are actually in a series uh, called uh, The Great Adventure. We're looking at the book of Acts, and what we're doing, what our philosophy is here at Bayshore, as far as teaching of the Word uh, at this campus, is to teach uh, the Word systematically, and we come to those passages we have to deal with that teach us things that maybe we would otherwise avoid. So today, we're in a really uh, cool part of Paul's life. He's finished his third missionary journey, and uh, he, is, uh, he ends up in jail today. Paul spent a lot of time in jail. Uh, and he ministered there. He had a captive audience, so he was there uh, constantly. So we are going to be looking at uh, uh, Acts 23, the end of Acts 23, and then a little bit uh, into, uh, in, into the, the next chapter here. Acts 23, verse 10 says this. It says, uh, The dispute began so violent that, violently that the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them. He ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them and force them and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage, as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. The next morning, some Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves with an oath not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. More than 40 men were involved in this plot. They went to the chief priests and the elders and said, We have taken a solemn oath not to eat anything until we have killed Paul. Now then, you and the Sanhedrin petitioned the commander to bring him before you on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about his case. We are ready to kill him before he gets here. But when the son of Paul's sister heard of this plot, he went into the barracks and told Paul. Then Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the commander. He has something to tell him. So he took him to the commander. The centurion said, Paul the prisoner sent for me and asked me to bring the young man to you because he has something to tell you. The commander took the young man by the hand, drew him aside and asked, what is it you want to tell me? He said, some Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul before the Sanhedrin tomorrow on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about him. Don't give in to them because more than 40 of them are waiting to ambush him. They have taken an oath not to eat or drink until they have killed him. They are ready now, waiting for your your consent uh, to their request. The commander dismissed the young man with the warning, Do not tell anyone that you have reported this to me. Then he called two of the centurions and ordered them, Get ready a detachment of 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearsmen to go to Caesarea at nine tonight. Provide horses for Paul so that he may be taken safely to the governor, Felix. This is an amazing story for a lot of reasons. Uh, One of the reasons is 
this is a climatic moment for Paul in his life. He has finally got to Jerusalem. He has collected money, hoping to be a blessing to the Jewish people in Jerusalem that are poor. And he gets there, and everything goes wrong. Everything goes wrong. And he's called before the Sanhedrin. And uh, one of the things we know about Paul's interaction with the Sanhedrin is the Sanhedrin is corrupt at that point. The chief priest is a guy named Ananias, and his, history has told us that uh, when the Jewish war broke out in 66 AD, the first thing they did was burn down his house, and, and they killed this high priest. He was very, very corrupt. And so because he was corrupt, uh, Paul was not going to get a fair trial. So we talked about last week how Paul got punched in the face and how he responded in his flesh. He came out in the flesh. We talked about, you know, how we sometimes we learn more about ourselves by our reactions than we do from our actions. But today, one of the things we see today in this story is that Paul exploited the, the Sanhedrin. And this is really interesting about Paul. He was not only uh, human, but he was also very savvy. He looked at the Sanhedrin, made up 70 people. This is the Jewish Supreme Court that kind of runs internally the things of the, uh, of, the, of, the, of the city of Jerusalem. And he looks at them, and he knows that they're divided, and they're, part of them are Pharisees, which are very conservatives, uh, very conservative in doctrine, and uh, they believe in the supernatural, they believe in angels, they believe in heaven and all that. Then you've got the Sanhedrin, uh, made up of also of, of Sadducees that don't believe in the resurrection, they don't believe in angels, they don't believe in the afterlife, they're very liberal in their thinking. They only believe in the first five books of the Old Testament, and the Pharisees believe in all the Old Testament. So there's this, there's this divide, this political fault line in the Sanhedrin. So what Paul does is Paul exploits that, and he says, I'm a Pharisee. So all of a sudden, all the Pharisees come to Paul's side, and they support Paul because he's like them. And they said, well, maybe he has had a vision. And they get behind Paul, and a big fight breaks out between, this, in the, between the two parties of the Sanhedrin, the Sadducees and the Pharisees. Sort of, we have a political divide in our country. It was very similar uh, in that makeup in the Sanhedrin. So Paul said, I'm a Pharisee. I'm conservative. I believe in all the Old Testament. I believe in life after death. I believe in angels. I believe in demons. I believe in all that. Uh, and so he aligns himself with them. And so there's this big fight. And so they can't, the reason they have Paul there is they're trying to decide what to do with Paul. And now they start, they're starting to rip Paul apart. The Sadducees are grabbing up him on the side. The Pharisees are grabbing at him on the other side. So he's virtually, physically being pulled apart uh, in this meeting. And so they couldn't solve anything. They didn't come up with any conclusions about what Paul was guilty of. So they take him and they put him in the barracks. They put him in jail. So let's think about what's been happening in Paul's life in the last three or four weeks. He has traveled half the distance of the Mediterranean Ocean. He's met with different groups of uh, Christian people as he gets into uh, the land of Palestine. He goes to Jerusalem and he meets with the apostles there. He meets with James and he meets with all the leaders of Jerusalem. Uh, he uh, is, uh, gives a speech and there's a riot that breaks out and they try to beat him up. In fact, Paul is almost beat up, or it, not almost, is beat up two times. This is all happening in a span of about three weeks. Then he's uh, called before the Sanhedrin and the high priest and he gets punched in the face by a member of the Sanhedrin. Uh, now, you know, he's, uh, the next day he's, 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 uh, he's thrown into jail. 
So I looked at the, the chronology of what happened in Paul's life the last three weeks or so, bringing us to this point, and about ten major things have happened to Paul. And he's been, he's been constantly on the move. He's always moving. For, for three weeks, it's been, his adrenaline has been pumping. He's been moving. He's been giving speeches. He's been beat up twice. He's been punched in the face. He's, he's stood before the apostles. He stood before the Sanhedrin. And his life has just been moving. All this stuff is happening in his life. Now, I don't know if your life has ever been that way. There's so much happening at one time, all this stuff happening. And he's put in jail, and he's there by himself for a couple days, and he begins to think. He begins to think. How many know that activity and excessive uh, activity can quiet your thoughts and it's a way to cope with the stuff that's going on in your mind? You know, you can, you can like, in fact, you can just constantly be working and moving. And I know some people, they can't sit still. They're always doing something. And one of the reasons that there are people that, that can never sit still is they're afraid of their thoughts. You know what the word amusement means? Have you, have you ever noticed how many people today, and I'm guilty as everybody else, um, I'm guilty sometimes of always with my, with my, my technical devices. How many, how many use your technical devices a lot? You're always like on your smartphone. In fact, I was on the smartphone one night with Karen on our date, and uh, she took it and threw it on Route 1, took my phone and just threw it on Route 1, you know? <laughs> Put that thing down. You know what the word amusement means? We're constantly amusing ourselves. The word amusement comes from an old English word, to muse. And that's an English word, it means to think, to think. To muse on something means to think. Amusic, amusement is the A. Whenever you see an A on the front of a word, it negates, and it's a negative, and so it means to not think, to not think. So the reason that we're constantly like on our iPads and all that, maybe it's because we don't want to think. But you know what? You can't stay away from your thoughts forever. At some point, you have to think. And Paul's been moving. He's, the adrenaline's been pumping. He's constantly been in activity, not just for three weeks. For years, he's been that way. And now, he's in a cell all by himself, and it's quiet. And when it gets quiet and life slows down, your thoughts get loud. When it gets quiet and life slows down, your thoughts get loud. And he begins to think. And he begins to think, here's what I think he's thinking. I think maybe he's thinking, did I make a mistake in coming to Jerusalem? After all, he had several prophets, a guy named Agabus, that said, when you go to Jerusalem, they're going to arrest you and they're going to tie you up and and all that, and there was a group of uh, uh, Christians that warned him through a prophecy not to go to Jerusalem. And it was not the prophecies. If you look carefully at those prophecies in the book of Acts, he's never forbidden to go to Rome or to go to Jerusalem, but he's told that when he gets there, all this bad stuff's going to happen. So maybe he begins to think, maybe he begins to think, did I do the right thing? Should I be here? Now, let me ask you a question. This is an honest question for all of you, and I think we all as uh, humans can kind of relate to this. Have you ever made a decision, and then afterwards you begin to think, did I do the right thing? 
and it just keeps you up at night. Have you ever thought about that? Did I, did I, did I do the right thing in moving here? Did I do the right thing in changing jobs? Did I do the right thing in marrying this person, you know? Did I do the right thing in changing schools? And sometimes we have those questions, did we do the right thing? I remember when, a couple years ago, I did a, uh, I was doing a sermon on conquering fear, and somehow out of a, uh, you know, a service planning meeting, uh, I ended up doing a, going skydiving for the church. They were going to video it, so it would be an illustration for the, for the, uh, for the sermon. And I remember getting up about 20,000 feet over Laurel, Delaware, uh, with a parachute on my back, and I began to think, should I have done this? I don't, maybe I shouldn't have done this, you know? And especially when, you know, you go, you go out on the little, you go to that little door there, and there's a guy behind you, the tandem guy, and, and, and they'd say, look at, the, look at the wing, there's a guy there that's going to take your picture, so you look at it, and then they push you out, you know? <laughs> so I'm flying down, there's a yellow streak going behind me, I'm flying down, and I'm thinking, maybe, maybe I shouldn't have done this. <laughs> so sometimes you, you start thinking, you know, did I do the right thing? Did I do the right thing? So his mind is working, and he's beginning to analyze where he's at, and did he make some wrong turns along the way? And he's beginning to rethink that, and he's thinking about that. And so his mind is troubled, and he's getting discouraged. Paul is getting discouraged. The apostle Paul is struggling with discouragement. He, he's probably thinking, too, what about my future? What does my future look like? Uh, you know, he wanted to go to Rome. We know throughout the, the scriptures, we know that uh, Paul had this dream to go to Rome. He says in Acts, he writes the, in the book of Romans, he wants to go to Rome. He has this vision, and now he's in jail. He has no idea when he's going to get out of jail, and maybe he's wondering, is my dream, is my vision ever going to take place? Am I ever going to get to Rome? So sometimes, you know, the thoughts that keep us up at night, we think about, you know, we have these dreams, we have this aspiration. Are we ever going to get where we want to go? Are we ever going to get there? So the reason I know that Paul is discouraged, and I think, I think all discouragement comes from our thinking, how we begin to think. It's we, if we think these horrible thoughts, our thought life is going to lead us into a dark place. I have a good friend, very good friend that I went to school with, went to college with, and he struggled with depression for, for a lot of years, and he loved Jesus. He was a follower of the Lord and a deeply devoted servant of the Lord. And he told me, he said, Danny, he said, my thoughts start here. I have, this, I have one bad thought, and I feed on that bad thought, and it leads to another bad thought, and that leads to another bad thought, and that leads to another bad thought. And he said, I start up here, but the spiral effect of my thinking leads me to a very low place. And I just wonder if Paul in that quiet cell where everything's quiet, the action is stopped, his, his thoughts are loud, he's beginning to feel really discouraged and he's really beginning to feel down about, did I do the right thing? What's my future look like? And there's some people here this morning as I'm talking, somebody's here this morning, uh, you're worried about your future. How, how is your future going to play out? Is your future... Are you going to ever get to that thing you've been dreaming about? And you know what? Paul's going to get to Rome. He's going to make it to Rome. He's going to testify before the, the uh, Caesar of Rome. But at that point in his life, he doesn't know how that's going to work out. So let me just talk a little bit about, uh, just real quickly, about our thought life 
and what to do about our thought life. There's two things we need to do in order to, to deal with our thought life. Uh, the first thing is, is we need to, we need to demobilize our thoughts. Uh, there's a great scripture in, uh, in 1 Corinthians, and let me read it to you as soon as I find it here. Uh, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Here it is somewhere. I got it here. Here we go. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and uh, we're going to find in just a minute. Pray my iPad will lead me to this right scripture here. Here we go. Okay, here it is. 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3 through 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 6. For though we live in the world... We do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. Listen to this, and this is a verse you're probably familiar with. And we take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. Say that phrase with me after me. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. So what that says is you capture your thoughts and you don't let them just go wherever they want to. My friend that I told you about that has one bad thought leads to another bad thought leads to another bad thought and he has that spiral effect. He doesn't capture the original thought. He lets that thought wander and wherever that thought wanders, it wanders to a lower and lower place. You have to capture your thoughts. Now, the word Greek here, the Greek word for capture, it's used uh, in uh, Luke 21, where the city of Jerusalem is captured and, and destroyed by the Romans. And, and the captured people, their hands are tied and they're led uh, where the Romans want them to go. So if you let your thoughts kind of go wherever they want to go without capturing your thoughts, your thoughts will lead you to all these different places. And so when Paul's alone, his thoughts are starting to wander, and he's getting discouraged. And we, the reason we know he's discouraged is because Jesus appears to him to encourage him, and Jesus comes to encourage him because Paul's discouraged. Very, very clear in the text that he's discouraged, and so Paul uh, is encouraged by the Lord. So you've got you to deal with your wandering thoughts. Say this way, my thoughts cannot be given free reign to go wherever they want to. Now, the picture, the, the Greek word is the picture of, of something being bound and led so it cannot go wherever it wants to. Karen and I were... Uh, Early in the summer, maybe right around Memorial Day, a little bit after Memorial Day, we were going to Lewis one day. We got to Lewis. We were down Savannah Highway, and uh, we were going to eat at Nectar. Nectar's one of our favorite restaurants, and so we were going to eat at Nectar. But Savannah uh, Street was having some, some construction done. So they basically uh, detoured us off, the, off Savannah, and you couldn't get back on Savannah. We had to park on a side street over by uh, the town hall, and we had to park there, and we had to get out of our car there and walk uh, to, to the Nectar's restaurant. And we're walking down this side street, and they've got these orange cones everywhere. And the orange cones are blocking the road. 
So we had to walk around the orange cones, and we walked, and we could see as we got further down that side street, there was a guy working on the, on the street there. But while we're there, there's a policeman there, too, and he's guarding the road. And there's this, and I'm not going to say it was a tourist, but it was somebody that, that literally pulled around those cones and was going down that street that was blocked off. And this policeman, good old Sussex County boy, he was, uh, he was annoyed. And he held up his hand. He said, what are you doing? He said, what do you think those cones are there for? And then there was this interesting conversation about somebody, you know, out of town. So it was interesting. But those cones were set in place so you can't travel, you couldn't travel in that direction. So with your thinking and my thinking, we have to set up those orange cones and we have to be like a policeman, take authority and say, I'm not going to let these thoughts dictate my thinking anymore. I'm going to take charge of those. Now, I was raised uh, in a farm, on a farm, near a farm. Uh, My grandparents, uh, Western Sussex, uh, we had about an 80-acre farm, and so I grew up, my parents built a house on, on this farm. And um, so we grew up with lots of cats. There were cats everywhere. And, and if you live in the country, uh, people just drop cats off. How many know that? If you, they just drop, if you live in the country, in fact, my sister, I was talking to my sister last night. She said somebody dropped off a cat this week at her house. She has a nice house there in western Sussex. And uh, they dropped a cat off. And, of course, the cat was pregnant, so they dropped the cat off. And the cat had seven kittens in her garage yesterday. So that's the world we lived in. And I know, how many, how many of you out there, you love cats? You have a cat and you love your cat. You love your cat more than your husband. Just raise your hand right now. <laughs> you love your cat. You know, and uh, so, you know, hey, I'm not against cats. You know, I'm more of a dog person. But, you know, hey, you love cats. And I, I mean, I'm all about cats. So cats are great if you love cats. And I know you love cats. And people that love cats, I mean, they love cats. So I don't understand that. So, but, but we had so many cats. Cats were just, they were a nuisance to us because there were so many of them. And uh, we fed them, but it was the survival of the fittest because there were so many cats. There were cats everywhere. My, my grandparents' farm was filled with cats. There were cats everywhere. Cats under the house, cats in the barn. And uh, in fact, they were like wild. So I used to catch them with a crab net. I would catch them. And, uh, and if you love cats, I mean, I, I know this is not going to help you at all. But I used to catch these cats, these, and I would put them in the mailbox so when the... Uh, so when the mailman opened the mailbox, they would jump into the car. So that's like the worst crime I've ever committed, but I did that. I did that, you know. But as I said, we fed these cats. We fed them, but we didn't, like, make sure every one of them got something to eat. We put some food out there and do your best to get some food. That's what we did. So consequently, these cats were always hanging around the door because they were hungry. And it's not because we were unkind. We tried to feed them, but if they're not big enough to get their food, we can't spoon feed cats. We don't have that kind of time because there's dozens and dozens of cats. So they're standing by the door, and they're always trying to get in the door. So I don't want to be unsensitive to you cat lovers, but we would just, when they would try to get in the door, we'd just kind of give them a little boot, you know? And uh, they'd be flying everywhere through the because they were just, they were trying to get in. And uh, we had no feline birth control plan. It was out of control. So they were just, in my mom, you know, she was 
mom be barefooted, and she, that cat, this cat's be trying to get in. And she, my mom is a cat lover, loves cats. Oh my gosh. And she would, uh, she, she'd do a field goal kick with those cats, and they'd do a little fly, you know. And here's the thing about our thoughts, our, you know, our thoughts are like cats at the door, trying to get into our thinking. And we have to limit their access to certain areas. We have to take authority over those things. And, and to do that in a, in a real positive way. Because, uh, you know, Paul's sitting there. Here's what I think happens. I think Paul's sitting there. It's quiet. And when it gets quiet, your thoughts get loud. And when you slow down, life slows down. And you're not as active. Your thoughts get loud. And so he's, he's, he's letting these thoughts go wherever they want to. And you cannot let your thoughts have access to wherever they want to go. And so you've got you to take authority over those. And the Bible says in Philippians chapter 4, 8, uh, whatsoever uh, is good, whatsoever is lovely, whatsoever is honorable, whatsoever is pure, whatsoever is uh, worthy, think on these things in Philippians 4, 8. What a great verse. Uh, and it says, think on these things. Now, my Greek tells me that when it says think on these things, that's an imperative mood and it means to imperative tense. It means it's a command, think on these things. So basically, you have to have defense and offense to deal with your thoughts. Defense is don't let them go wherever they want to. But offense is, in Philippians 4.8, it's not saying don't think about bad things. In Philippians 4.8, it's saying... Think about these things. Be proactive in thinking about these things. So if you, if you go into a... If I walked into your living room and there's a bunch of people there in your living room, you've got chairs everywhere, and there's one chair that's unoccupied. If I walk into that room, I'm going to go to the unoccupied chair. Now... Because it's a vacant area. So it's not enough to say, don't think bad thoughts, don't think bad thoughts, don't think bad thoughts. You've got to control your thinking, but you also have to be proactive about thinking about good things. Because if you fill your mind with good things, you occupy the chair, and a negative thought cannot sit where there is a positive thought. Say that with me. A negative thought cannot sit where there's a positive thought. So Paul said in Philippians 4, 8, think on these things. So this week, I you know, had a little bit of a challenging week, which I'll tell you about in a minute. But for me, I've been uh, in the Word, reading the Word, and, and worshiping the Lord. And uh, I'm thinking about wonderful things in my life. Wonderful things in my life. Wonderful thing happened to me the other day. I got here uh, to work, and I'm walking uh, outside there by where you'd go to the, uh, the children's department there. I was getting ready to go down the sidewalk to my, to my office. And my son, Joel, just unloaded our grandkids out of the car in the back parking lot. And my little grandson, Nixon, saw me. And he, he, he loves me. He just loves me. He said, Papa. And he ran across that, that grass and just jumped on me. And I've been thinking about it. That's a wonderful vision. You know the, another thing I've been thinking about? You know, in, uh, in August, 
Now, that's a good thing to think about. That's a little picture of Nixon running. I just play that video over and over in my mind. And another, another thought, in August, Karen and I will be married 42 years. And I've been thinking about standing in the front of the church there at Laurel where we got married. And watching her walk down the aisle. And I'm thinking, how did I land such a babe? How did I do that? And everybody else is thinking, how did he land such a babe? <laughs> I've got that little vision. thought about the honeymoon too, but I can't go into that. There's wonderful, wonderful, <laughs> wonderful thoughts. Think about sitting not too many weeks ago in Chaps. If you haven't eaten at Chaps, the barbecue place in Rehoboth with my two sons, two grown sons that are gainfully employed, making money, living in their own houses. Well, Joel's going to move in in a couple of weeks, but anyhow, he's going to get out. <laughs> Pray for me again. There he goes. Uh, sit with my two sons that love Jesus. And we're studying a Bob Goff book, and we're talking about Jesus, and we're talking about business, and we're talking about how to be successful in life. And I'm thinking, what a blessed man I am. What a blessed man I am. See, I'm occupying the empty chair with something good. Because if you leave a chair empty and just say, I'm not going to think something bad, another bad thought will come in and occupy that chair. Jesus said, if you cast a, a demon out of a person, that person becomes vacant and clean and orderly. But if that person is not refilled with something, a demon, seven demons more fierce than the first demon will come in and occupy that place that wasn't occupied. So you have to occupy your mind with good things. That's why it says in Philippians 4.8, think about these things. Now, let me just tell you a little bit about this, uh, how this story ends. And I would love to just, I could spend two hours on this text. But um, we read today that there's 40, 40 people that make a pack to kill Paul. They're not going to eat or drink until they kill him. That's how much he's hated. By the way, just for your information, if you ever see a leader that's hated, it doesn't necessarily mean that's a bad leader. All great leaders are adored and hated simultaneously. And there's people that adored Paul, and there are people that hated Paul. So when I hear about a leader being hated, I just say, I'm not so sure that means he's a bad leader or she's a bad leader. Because if you're a great leader, Winston Churchill was hated. Uh, Abraham Lincoln was hated. Uh, there's anyhow. So just a principle to remember, any person in leadership of a company or anything else, if they're hated by some people, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're a bad person. That's, that's free. That's free. But that's just me. Anyhow, I'm not trying to say anything there. I'm just saying that's true. So you're reading into that. Just, you know, that's just a principle. So anyhow, <clears throat> they, try to kill, they want to kill him. And, the, and listen, we know the, the Sanhedrin's corrupt because the high priests are in on the plan. The plan gets leaked. And we find out that Paul has a relative in Jerusalem a sister lives there that has a boy and a nephew, hears about it, and he goes and tells Paul, and Paul sends him to talk to Felix, uh, not Felix, but uh, Clytus, Clytus Lysias, the guy in charge, and listen to what happens. He said, don't tell anybody. They take 470 soldiers. 470 soldiers. They have 1,000 soldiers posted at the Antonio Fortress. They take almost half of the soldiers. And they, they at 9 o'clock at night, they get Paul, and they secretly give him 
a, uh, give him cover and protection to go to Caesarea. Half of the soldiers in Jerusalem are deployed to protect Saul. That's how much, when, whenever the, these 40 people had a plan against Paul, God had a bigger plan, and no plan of man can destroy the purpose of God, and the purpose of God was for Paul that he would go to Rome. It doesn't matter 40 or 80 or 120 people say we're not going to eat or drink until we kill Paul. God can always trump the plans of men, and God took the whole, almost half of the army to protect Paul, and you see God's sovereignty and his grace to protect Paul and take care of him because God's in charge of Paul's life, not some crazy people that want to kill Paul. Say this with me, God is in charge of my life, and he's going to protect me and take care of me. So, and listen to this, and I'm almost out of time. I have 26 seconds left, but I'm going to go over just a little bit today. They provided mounts for Paul. Mounts for him. That means they gave him a horse to ride on while the soldiers walked. And they gave him another horse to put his baggage on. And they not only gave him a horse to ride on, they carried his Samsonite luggage and they had almost 500 soldiers protecting Paul because God has Paul's back and God's watching out for Paul regardless of what the enemy tries to do. And I'm here to tell you that God has your back. Can you say a big amen? Amen. He has your back. So this week for me, Challenging week. My mom, my mom's going to go be with the Lord this morning, more than likely. She may be going to the Lord right now. You know, I've been, I left her 5.30 this morning. And uh, wonderful weekend with my family. But uh, Friday night, you know, we're all walking through this. And a lot of you have walked through this yourselves. And uh, so this is new for me. But Friday night, uh, praying, praying for my mom. And the parking lot of my house where I grew up started filling up with people and all these people came dozens and dozens of them for their church and there's my mom on the hospital bed that hospice has done such a wonderful job taking care of her and those Christians those crazy charismatic Pentecostal Christians they come into that they come into that uh, that dining room where she is and we get around her because she's going to take a journey. We get around her and they started singing to Jesus. They started worshiping the Lord. And the lady next to me, I, I mean, I was adopted as a song leader and I'm not a song leader. She kept saying, lead this song. And I'm like leading these songs I haven't sung in years. And we're singing and my mom is there and we're singing. And God provided an army. God provided an army to get around her, to protect her as she goes to be with the Lord. God is sovereign over our lives, and he has a way of taking care of us. It doesn't matter what man does. It doesn't matter what disease does. It doesn't matter what anything does. God is bigger than any scheme of the devil. God is bigger than any scheme of the man. He'll provide mounts. He'll provide an army to usher us into the place where he wants us to be. Can you say a big amen? And we just worshiped and we sang to the Lord. And mom, I know she could hear us. And we're just, they kept elbowing me. 
sing another song, and we just kept singing. I'll tell you what, there was no lights, there was no smoke machine, there was any, and most of the people couldn't sing around me. (laughs) But it was wonderful. And I'll forever be grateful to those people because they are the army that came and got around to provide for my mom what she needed at this season of her journey. So I get up this morning, I'm, you know, I was there, stayed there all night, and I slept some, but uh, in and out, helping my sisters, and um, I got up, left there at 5.30, prayed with my mom, said the Lord's Prayer with her, and uh, quoted the 23rd Psalm. Told her you did a good job, you did a good job. So I come and I make some coffee at my house. I'm trying to work on this sermon. Lord knows I prepared it early, but I didn't remember any of it. So I, I, like, I was like going over this. And I haven't told a lot of people. I mean, I told, you know, people on the staff know and some of you people know. You folks that love us, care nice so much. Uh, but I have a friend that doesn't even know my mom's sick, doesn't know my mom's dying this morning. And he never texts me. But before I walked out the door to preach, there was a guy that texted me that I went to school with and said, hey, I'm praying for you this morning. I'm praying for you. You've done a great job in your church, and I love you, and I'm praying for you. I looked at that text, and I said, you know what that is? That's the army of the Lord getting around me to take me where I need to know. go. God always has your back, and he always has provision for you. He always has provision for us because he is the God who watches over those that feel alone, that feel isolated. Paul's in that jail cell. He feels all alone. Jesus comes, says, you're going to Rome. I'm with you and I'm going to protect you. And God mobilizes the whole Roman army to get that boy where he needed to go. So God has your back. Would you lift your hand this morning as we prepare to have our final prayer this morning? Would you lift your hands to the Lord? And would you just say to the Lord, Lord, I thank you that you are in charge of my life. Don't let your thoughts get ugly. Don't let your thoughts get sad. Don't let your thoughts get filled with, with doubts and fears and, uh, and all kinds of, you know, cynicism. But let your thoughts be filled with the goodness of the Lord because he is with you and he cares about you and he has your back. Lord, we thank you today as we go into this week. God, all of us have different things we're facing this week. But as we go into this week, this week. We thank you, Lord, that there's no weapon formed against us that can ever prosper. And you've surrounded us with an army to provide for us. You've surrounded us with encouragement. And you surrounded us with love because you are a faithful and good God. We bless you today. And we love you in Jesus' name. And everybody said amen and amen. If you love the Lord, say a big amen. Let's give the Lord a praise offering this morning.